Hello and welcome to The Scoop, a provincial newscast and podcast with stories from LJI journalists around British Columbia. Each week, reporters from Revelstoke, Cortez Island, Kootenai, Terrace, Prince George and Smithers will share the news affecting their place in BC. I'm your host and producer, Pamela Hassan from CSEK News and Smithers. The Scoop was made possible by the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the Local Journalism Initiative Program, or LJI. Follow The Scoop on CICK Smithers Community Radio, 93.9 FM, every Thursday and Saturday at noon, online at smithersradio.com, and of course, wherever you get your podcasts. At a community dialogue session this week in Smithers, BC Housing presented their proposal to the community for a 40-unit building in their Homes First approach to Smithers' unhoused population. CSEK News' Dan Messick has that scoop. Honoring our harvesters, both past and present, is the theme of this year's Hobie in Gingolf. CFNR's Sabrina Spencer shares what Hobaye means this year for the Nishka people. Reduced funding and increased costs are closing down Nelson's harm reduction space called the Coordinated Access Hub. CJLY's Scott Anishak has the scoop. Wood pellets are a source of fuel, mulch, sawdust, or even hamster bedding. But the collection and production of wood pellets can go too far. Ian Gregg is scooping the cage with retired UNBC professor Dr. Phil Burton today. And good news for all you dreamers out there, Cortez Island's Rue McDonald says this is the time of year that your dreams can come true. Here's CKTZ's Lonnie Taylor on that. Hi, Rue. Hi. So tell me what Dream Rituals Workshop is. At this time of year in the Celtic calendar, it's Imolk, which means in the belly, which is a time of year that's that's similar to the time when you're just about to wake up. It's like the early morning hours. It's a very liminal time and a time when a lot of dreams come. And so we're going to be doing dream rituals during the dreamiest time of year. It's the time to like yeah, gently stir our creative spirits and awaken gently with the growing light and pay attention to our dreams. Part of this is that we're going to be following the moon cycle and we're going to be weaving botanical art, music, movement, storytelling, folk herbalism, and then learning about dream practice. So if um, if you're looking to move through a creative block or begin a dream practice or connect with ancestral cultural practices, this offering is for you. Dream practice deeply nourishes our creative processes. When held in a cultural container, we can dive deep to retrieve what's been lost and tap into our wellspring and allow our creative spirit to stoke our flame. I'm a storyteller and a ritualist. I'm rooted in my ancestral traditions, most deeply Highland, Scottish, and Irish. So that's really guiding a lot of this offering is um, drawing on my own ancestral traditions. And But the magic school specifically has been mostly geared towards kids. So this was this was in demand. This was requested to do an adult series. It was. <laughs> there was lots of comments being like, why is this just for kids? And anytime I was at the market telling people about it, they're like, oh, I wish I could go. And I was like, all right, okay, got to do something for adults. And then, yeah, just over the couple years that I've lived here, building relationship with the Women's Center, they reached out and asked if I wanted to host something there. And I was very stoked and really excited about that opportunity. So went for it. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so each workshop stands alone, but it, you can also do all three and it won't be redundant. 
Mm-mm. Yeah, they'll build on each other, and you'll be able to go deeper and and learn different things about connecting with Jim. But yeah, it's I would recommend coming for all three if you can. But if you can just come for one, you're so welcome. Lonnie Taylor, CKTZ News, Cortez Island. Back in late December 2023, BC Forestry Minister Bruce Ralston, ahead of a trade mission to Japan, highlighted a continuing demand for wood fiber. He mentioned the industry is looking at sources of fiber that probably, historically, might not have been looked at. Dr. Phil Burton, recently retired from UMBC's Environmental Sciences and Biology Departments, formerly teaching at the Terrace campus, joins us over the phone to shed some light on one of the scenes backdropping the wood fiber industry. Dr. Burton, what spurred you and your peers to tackle the research and writing a book on the topic of salvage logging? Yeah, it was prompted by the uh, the concurrence of the mountain pine beetle outbreak in British Columbia and David Lindenmeyer's uh, visit here where he was a a guest lecturer back in 2006 or seven, as well as uh, extensive bushfires in Australia, uh, forest fires in the US Pacific Northwest, uh, all of which was followed by huge um, uplifts in industrial activity to quickly log those forests that had been burned. And our collective concern that hold on, uh, there seemed to be some impacts associated with this rush to log all the damaged trees. Right. I must say that I'm part of the, perhaps the majority, who at the time felt that, oh, if these trees are dead post a beetle infestation or perhaps a forest fire, why wouldn't we try to capture their economic value and bring that to market? It seems like the ecosystem has already been damaged. Why would this be harmful. Your research suggests that there's ecological value to burnt forests and beetle kill forests as well. Absolutely. Let's let's first review that there are some good reasons for salvage logging. Uh, First of all, if you are managing only for timber, you want to recover the value of that fiber, whether it's for saw logs, pulp or pellet fuel, before it rots, before it deteriorates. So the sooner you can get in there and and, and, um, harvest the wood from damaged trees, whether it's from windstorms, insect outbreaks or fire, uh, the better. Uh, There are also sometimes uh, safety and access concerns where, for example, wind thrown or burnt trees are in danger of falling, uh, for example, on hiking trails uh, near campgrounds. There's lots of reasons for removing uh, dead and damaged uh, trees. On the other hand, if we are in fact managing forests for multiple values, for multiple ecosystem services, including wildlife habitat, watershed protection, recreation, cultural values, and so forth, then timber value alone should not take precedence. It's short-sighted thinking, it's human material uh, needs uh, focused thinking, and it's also what, what in forestry we call stand level thinking, just looking at the individual um, uh, collection of trees in front of us, rather than thinking of the whole, the whole forest landscape or region. Salvage logging is a practice that continues and it's almost taken on a, a new meaning 
in recent times when we consider the pellet industry. When pellets were introduced as a concept, the, the going thinking was, this is fantastic. There's plenty of waste wood left around in various forestry activity, slash piles, things like that. And this can actually be uh, harvested yet again to make yet another product. And it all feels carbon neutral, environmentally friendly. But it seems the, the pace has expanded so much on it that the industry looks somewhat changed from those early visions for it. I'm curious if you feel that current pellet harvesting is increasing pressure on forests or, or not? Yeah, it is because in fact, they're not just harvesting wastewood, but uh, are getting uh, cutting permits to harvest live standing trees uh, in, in intact forests, intact primary forests. So yeah, I, I think it's in fact scandalous because the whole growth and and licensing of the pellet industry in British Columbia was premised on the fact that they would deal with waste wood and prevent it from being uh, disposed of in burn piles where the carbon dioxide emissions would um, would um, have absolutely no beneficial use, whereas it could be used to ha- to um, fuel a, a, a bioenergy sector. Um, but the there have been perverse interpretation now of what is waste wood. So the BC uh, government is now saying that any uh, stand of public timber that does not meet you know the quality requirements of the saw log or pulp sector and for which there are no uh, outstanding bids that uh, BC timber sales can attract to it can in fact go to the pellet fuel sector if they feel they can make money from it. So it's it's not waste wood in the sense of slash piles and burn piles that most of the public would interpret, but waste wood in that, well, we have no other bidders on this piece of forest. So even though it's natural habitat for many species, provides watershed protection, you know, is an ecologically functioning ecosystem, um uh, the the government is considering it up for grabs by by anyone including the pellet fuel sector and it's further tragic that uh, most of the that pellet fuel is then shipped offshore through diesel powered ships to go all the way to places like britain rather than in fact offsetting our carbon emissions and fossil fuel consumption here in canada so uh, I, I just don't see how any of that makes sense. Plant ecologist Dr. Phil Burton, recently retired from the University of Northern British Columbia within the Faculty of Environment and Biology, to name a few, alerting us to the context of some wood fiber harvesting practices, particularly related to salvage logging, insect infested, and burned timber stands. This is Ian Gregg reporting for CIFA Radio's Due North on 88.7 FM. This initiative is made possible by the Community Radio Fund of Canada through the Local Journalism Initiatives Program. Find our news stories online at frequencynews.ca or cfur.ca. For the full story, make sure to visit that article and all of Ian's articles on frequencynews.ca Just search for CFUR. Housing has been a long-standing issue in many communities, especially for those of us in the North. 
At last night's BC Housing Community Information Session, some residents expressed support for the proposed 40-unit supportive housing facility behind Town Hall and next to Goodacre Place, while others, including adjacent property owners, expressed some concerns. Although this is at least the third iteration of such a proposal in the past year, and it would be at least another two years before any beds were available, it looks like this BC Housing proposal is on track to be developed if the rezoning application is approved by Town Council at the end of February. Although it is still early days in the planning process, there are still mixed feelings about the proposed site and the neighborhood for this new supportive housing development. Especially when you talk about rezoning timelines after that. <laughs> so, but let's round out the evening. BC Housing's um, Kirsten Bailey. Where we are at in terms of process, uh, you may have heard we've gone to, I think it's first and second reading, right Mark? Um, for the development that's happening in January. We did a virtual open house in February, so that's where we met and chatted online. This is our in-person open house. Clearly we're here at the moment. Um, we are hoping to get a public hearing and third reading tomorrow. Um, and then, not tomorrow? Mark, help me, when? 13th, 13th, okay. Still in, okay. February 13th, I'm sorry, days blend together. So February 13th, we're hoping for that. And then if it passes, um, we would move into adoption. That would enable BC Housing to close on the purchase and sale agreement and purchase the properties. And then in terms of the timing that BC Housing would be following, we would need to procure a design team and an architect and things like that. We would be working with stakeholders to, to help shape those designs. We would need to go back to City Council for a development <coughs> permit, and then ultimately a building permit. I'm gonna guess that design phase is at least a year out, um, and then construction is at least a year. So we're looking at a project coming on stream in two to three years in terms of following the design timelines. At Smithers Council meeting next week, February 13th, there will be a public hearing held to hear from the community about what they think of this proposal. Some property owners that live adjacent to the proposed site feel that this will just be another Band-Aid solution. Yeah, so my name is Jason. I live across the street from where they're proposing to uh, build this home. I this, guess this, this, this 40, 40 unit development. Yeah. And what are some of your major concerns living right across the street? Well, I look at sort of the bigger picture, um, where our society is heading and why. Um, I don't like to see homeless people by any means, but is this going to fix the problem or is it a band-aid? That's sort of uh, where I stand. Yeah. There's a, a similar supportive housing unit that's I guess would be on just adjacent or behind the property where they're looking at building this one. Yeah, the um, one, yeah. yeah, the Good Acre Place. And it sounds like, it, you know, it's it obviously worked for some, but we had a homelessness issue before then, and we might have a homelessness issue after. So what are some of the things that you'd like to talk about? You know, if you do have some of these concerns, what would, what do you think could be done to kind of see or remedy this situation because it seems to be persisting. You know, this isn't going to amount to much, but I know it's true. 
when you give somebody that's capable of working housing and food, you're actually taking away their freedom because they don't have to earn it. And where's their self-worth? My name is Bronwyn Young and I'm here tonight representing the Situation Table. And Bronwyn, tell me a little about your involvement with this uh, project here and um, looking to build a supportive housing unit, um, another one here in Smithers. So we were invited here tonight so that we may share some of the data that we see at our table coming forward. We're not here to um, promote any certain position, uh, pro or against, but simply to help with the bigger story of what's happening in the community and what we're seeing coming to our table. Yeah. What kind of information were you looking at here in relation to the data collected at other supportive housing builds across the province? Sure, so the Situation Table is, is a unique kind of initiative that's been rolled out throughout towns in British Columbia. Um, but here we have specific data that we've gathered for our Smithers community. And what you have in front of you is a representation in data of what the most common risk factors are for the folks who are at that acutely elevated risk who come uh, presented at the table. And you can see that the lack of appropriate housing, alcohol abuse or misuse, and substance misuse or abuse are the three most common risk factors that somebody presents with, though there are many more that also come on board often. Um, the top originating agencies, so the people who bring forward these individuals to say we need to wrap around support, um, police, Good Acre Place and the Friendship Centre. Now a main part of the role of the Situation Table is to take away some of the non-criminal um, behaviours that police are being called to. So when it's not a criminal matter, it's better served by service providers in the community. So what happens when someone who may be in these other categories, what happens when they do get housed? Their level of safety and support is greatly increased. Their ability to have a, an off day and be able to be in a warm, safe space where they can experience that with support is something that they have access to. When you don't have a home to live in, you have nothing that's permanent. You have nothing that um, is there to catch you. And so it's very easy to, to feel left behind. What do you hope happens if this project does go ahead and what would that mean for the community? I hope that it would be an integrated approach to look at the different facets of where people are at when they're on the housing continuum and what they're ready for. I hope that it would be a collaborative, supportive action between community members. For the full story, as well as an update on the BC Housing proposal for Smithers on Alfred Ave, check out smithersradio.com or frequencynews.ca and search for Smithers. Next up, Sabrina Spencer is speaking about the upcoming Nishka Hubier. Here's CFNR's Sabrina Spencer now. In Dowloan, I'm Sabrina Spencer with The Journey Continued, highlighting local stories that matter to you. 
This year's Hobie celebrations will be held in the Nishkat village of Gingolith on February 23rd and 24th. Hosting this year are the Gingolith Cultural Dancers. Stephen Doolin, the chairman of the Cultural Dancers, spoke with CFNR about what people can expect at this celebration where they will be honoring our harvesters both past and present. Hobie has been a tradition for a number of years now. We're celebrating the beginning of a new year of uh, harvest season, celebrating the beginning of a new abundance of uh, fish and everything else that follows it. So it's a big two-day celebration. And every year, different uh, villages in the Mass Valley host Hobie, is that correct? Correct. This year, uh, King Gok is hosting it, and next year, uh, Kitlak Damax will be hosting. We'll be passing the moon on to them on Saturday evening. Okay, and so... And rotates around to the four communities. Like, what types of things for anybody who's never been to a Hobie celebration, what are some of the things that uh, people can expect? That's going to be their first time attending the Hobie, the doors are wide open to anybody to attend. Public's allowed to attend and witness our celebration and take in and absorb all the traditional songs and the dances and the stories of my elders and whatnot. And this year's theme is honoring our past and present harvesters. And there'll be traditional foods. I believe it's going to be on Saturday. We have meals set out throughout the whole day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for both days, Friday and Saturday. You also have vendors and things like that there as well? Yes, there's going to be uh, quite a few vendors. We'll have vendors up on the stage, I believe, and up on top, the balcony area. There's not a lot of floor space for vendors on the main floor, but we will have vendors available. And the vendors usually sell whatever arts and crafts they have. Some of them are clothing and whatnot, beadworking and wood carvings and jewelry and whatever whatever their heart desires to sell. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us at all? Parking, uh, we usually kind of have a tough time with parking, so it'll be you'll be entering our community straight into the village and straight down the one road as you enter, and then you'll exit out on the waterfront street. There'll be parking attendants available to help you get your vehicles parked, and we have a community bus and hopefully a couple of other buses available to help move the people around to go get their vehicle if they end up having to park far away. So there'll be vehicles available, and we'll have security and everything around the community for the weekend. And one final question. You mentioned that this year's celebration is to be honoring the harvesters of the past and the present. So how will you be doing that throughout the celebration? Right now, we have the school, uh, the elementary school. The the kids are working on uh, paper drawings. They're drawing like uh, pictures of uh, whatever the harvesters harvest, like fish, crab, olecans, seal, sea lion, moose, even stuff like uh, blueberries, whatever is traditionally harvest and even like red sheet of bark we harvest we have our people that harvest red sheet of bark and devil club for traditional medicine and teaching our people how to utilize uh, our stuff from the land and these are the people that will be honoring us the this year's OBA. Thank you so much we definitely look forward to being there and celebrating the new year with you. Okay we look forward to um, seeing you guys um, coming up and the roads are great the uh, weather's other than that, we're looking forward to a good time. This story is brought to you in partnership with the Local Journalism Initiative of Canada.
You can see the full story at FrequencyNews.ca. Last week, Nelson's Committee on Homelessness sent out a press release stating that the coordinated access hub that provides harm reduction services will be closing in March due to funding issues. Cooney Co-op Radio made several attempts to connect with Nelson Cares and the Nelson Committee on Homelessness, but did not receive a reply prior to this recording. Nelson's Neighbourhood Network, which was formed last year as a response to the toxic drug crisis, has issued a response. Tanya Finley, the chair of the Neighbourhood Network, says they are advocating for good neighbour policies. We have asked for a pause in all services in Nelson until the community and the rest of the communities abroad in our region can manage what they currently have. We are advocating good neighbour policies and safe places for us to live. And I'm sorry that a vulnerable group in our community is being affected by this. Seniors and children are also the downtown, it used to be a beautiful place, and now it is being swallowed up by all sorts of band-aids and pilot projects. Finley also mentioned that her and other members of the community feel unsafe living next to the hub and other harm reduction sites because of a lack of guardrails. Treatment needs to be taken seriously, and the reason people are afraid when you place a shelter or an OPS site or a hub of any kind is because there is no guardrails. There is no way to know how we are going to be protected when we have to live beside this day after day. Saving lives and complete chaos do not go hand in hand. Compassion and love comes with rules, boundaries, and understood expectations, then consequences when needed. Otherwise, it's lawlessness. I feel I'm watching a government-assisted slow suicide of people that they are claiming to help. It is cruel and disgraceful. When asked what can be done about the issues between the homeless population and concerned residents living near harm reduction sites, Finley called for better communication from government and an opportunity for the neighbourhood network to work with those running the harm reduction sites. There's lack of communication between the provincial, federal government, the interior health and our local governments. And the three groups that were running the hub, two of those groups won't even speak to our group or allow even have communication lines to have some sort of middle ground My understanding is that the hub didn't get funding and we had nothing to do with that. The hub will be officially closing in March. Nelson Care says they are working diligently to find a new location that is suitable to host the drop-in resource and referral centre with extended services that will be sustainable over the long term. Reporting in Nelson, Scott Onstruck, KCR News. And that's this week's episode of The Scoop, a podcast and broadcast featuring stories from remote BC by the journalists in the communities of Smithers, Cortez Island, Revelstoke, Kootenai, Prince George, and Terrace. This program was made possible by the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the Local Journalism Initiative Program. Tune in next week for another episode and follow us online wherever you get your podcasts.